OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Okay. Well, we'll get started right away. We're right into this. So let's make it happen. So welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pavin. And let's welcome our investor for today, which is Daniel Marcos. Welcome. Hey, how are you, Jeffrey? Happy to be here. Very good. Thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to. Awesome. Well, I'm going to say that I'm pretty excited about our conversation. I know we've chatted in the past, but the reason I'm excited is because, man, you've got a lot of great content that you've put out. And I think we could actually talk for days, maybe even weeks on how much stuff you've done, all the great content that you have out there. And I know we're going to talk about uh, something that's probably really special and dear to your heart that you're getting ready to launch, which, oh, is, yes. which is your book. And I think this is all this time is kind of pent up for this excitement. But before we dive into that, um, why don't we start off by uh, if you could share a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of some of your past uh, from uh, all the way from your MBA to the, the companies that you've worked in, just a little bit of a uh, touch point on it. And then we'll drive into a few other things uh, after that. But while you're talking about your history, can you also share one thing about you that nobody would know? I'll start with that. Um, so have you seen recently, uh, there's a race called the World Toughest Race, the Eco Challenge. So I participated in the first Eco Challenge, uh, 1996, British Columbia. Um, and I was, I was uh, disqualified from the race because one of my team members broke a rule. Um, and let me just tell the backstory because it's important. The guy, the producer of uh, the series, it's called Mark Brunel, Australian producer, mm -hmm. and he produced Trump, uh, The Apprentice. And he's the one that came with your fire thing uh, with Trump. Um, so I was fired by him like three years before The Apprentice or four years before The Apprentice in national TV. So... That, oh, that's, that's awesome. That's very unique. <laughs> yeah, very unique. That's that's pretty cool. Well, I if saw you go to Discovery Channel uh, or in it's in YouTube, uh, you get uh, you could see when I was fired. So it was tough. Ah, very good. Well, I'm sure there was a lot of good learning from that, and I will look that up. Uh, I did see him speak at a conference back in I think it would have been 2000 and I'm going to say 2005. He came to Toronto and did a big talk, and it was uh, pretty fascinating. His whole upbringing. Arnell is a brilliant producer. He yeah. Is. Is very, very good. Oh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Uh, well, let's circle back. So maybe we can share a little bit again about your past because it's pretty exciting on the things you've done, but at least um, touch base on, on some of the, uh, uh, from the schooling all the way through because you've done a lot of great things. So I, I, I did three or four small companies when I was a kid. In, indeed, my first one, when I was like eight or nine, I did an aquarium, broke my, my parents' garage in half, and half of it was an aquarium, half of it was storage. Um, so, so I started pretty early because I realized very early the difference of being an entrepreneur and business owner and employee. Let me tell a quick story because it's really important. Uh, one day I was in Christmas with all my cousins and nephews, and we're all together in a, in a ranch in San Benito, Texas, uh, of an uncle. And Christmas morning, like 9, 10 a.m., we're opening the presents and having all the fun. And I see my father coming out of the room dressed in a suit. And I was like, why are you dressed in a suit? And so, well, I got called by my boss and they need to go to work. And then he had to fly to Mexico City. And I was like, what do you mean you have to go to work? It's Christmas. And so, well, there's this emergency. My father was a high government official at that moment. Mexico had a devaluation and it got tough. So he had to fly back. And I remember I was crying and having a tough time with my mom. I was probably seven or eight. And I told my mom, hey, why my father has to go and all my uncles are here? And my mom said, well, your uncles are entrepreneurs, they're business owners, and they have their own time and rules. Your father has a, a boss and has to go back. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, for me, all that's got to work, right? That was it. No, it was very different. And I, that was the first time kind of I understood. So I started doing companies, and it was a disaster because I did not have any discipline. Uh, and then during college, uh, I, I did uh, four and a half year college uh, in Mexico. And after a year and a half, I wanted to start another company. And my father was worried that I was going to be losing track. So he called my older brother and said, hey, get your little brother a job. If not, he's going to open another company. It's going to be bad. 
So my brother helped me get a job in a brokerage house and I worked three years in the brokerage house. And the issue of having to go to a desk every day and help me with my homework and all that, did better in college, but I had three years of trading experience. I, I was on the, on the desk trading stocks all morning for three years. So by the time I finished college, I had a huge experience of understanding how the world moved in stocks and, and IPOs and all these kinds of things. And it really gave me a, a huge view on understanding companies even before I left college. And not just putting roofs or working in the restaurant. I, I was really in analyst calls and doing analysis of balance sheets and stuff. Um, so after that, I got a job in the Mexican consulate in Hong Kong as a financial attaché, exactly the year that uh, Hong Kong was going from England to China. And I was there to do the liaison between the Mexican and Chinese government as part of that. So I lived in Hong Kong a couple of years. And one day I, I, was, I was done. And I said, Dad, I called, I called my parents and said, hey, just to let you know, I just resigned to my job. And I was, I, I was probably 24. I was making like five, $6,000 after taxes uh, in Hong Kong. So living alone, I was doing a, a good revenue on that. And I told my parents I just resigned. And they were like, what do you mean that you just resigned? I was like, I'm, I'm going back. And I went back and did went to, back to my parents' house and started my first company. And what I knew back then was stocks. That's what I knew the best. And at that moment, E-Trade was already a huge boom in the US. So I said, hey, I'm going to bring E-Trade to Mexico. And I tried to bring E-Trade to Mexico. And they, I, immediately I got a meeting with their business development guy in the US, in New York. And the guy said, hey, Mexico, it's on the list, but it's, going, it's country number 30. So we're going to open Mexico in 10 years, not today. And then I went back to Mexico, tried to get a brokerage license to have my own brokerage house. Uh, at that moment, all brokerage licenses were, were national and there were like 14 or 15 in the whole country. And they said, you're 24 years old, you're never going to get a brokerage license. So I said, okay, what, do I, what can I do? And this was a discussion with my father and a friend. What can I do with my resources and my knowledge? So when E-Trade wants to come to Mexico, they need to acquire me. And the, uh, the solution was they need two things, a group of employees or a team that could run that. And by the way, imagine in Mexico in 1999, who could program stock trading and platforms like that in Mexico online? No one. There was no experience of that. And the second is a group of potential clients that want to buy and sell stocks online. So we built that. And very soon after we built it, less than a year, uh, we sold it uh, to a Argentinian company. Uh, and the Argentinian company had gone to JP Morgan, New York, saying, hey, you want to be the leaders in Latin America? Help us raise all this really big round. And JP Morgan said, if you don't have Mexico and Brazil, you don't have anything. In, in Latin America, Mexico and Brazil are really, really big economies compared to the rest of the countries. So JP Morgan said, bring me operations in Mexico and Brazil, and we'll help you raise a big round of financing. So he acquired me, acquired uh, the best entrepreneur uh, in Brazil. Next week, we flew to New York and said, okay, he had Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. This guy had Brazil. I had Mexico all together. Now let's raise a round of financing. Uh, we raised $53 million from Goldman, uh, JP, um, Telmex, Intel, Microsoft, amazing investors, uh, raised 53. And we took the company in eight months from 100 employees that we were at that time to 1,200 employees. Operation nine countries, we opened three banks, seven brokerage houses, and off to the races. Uh, so I saw a really, really big scale at a very young age. Indeed, I left, uh, if there, even we sold it to Santander for $705 million. Um, and I stayed working for them for two years. So when I was like 28 or 29, I left and went to do my MBA because I, I thought I needed to go back to school and, and learn the real stuff. But by the way, that'll be a different story. But when I was in my 20s, we were able to see how to scale a company to a valuation of 700,000, so 700 million dollars. Um, so it was, it was a great view on how to scale companies fast and all the drama that creates. Like I was working 18 hours a day for like three years. It was really tough. Um, and all the issues that that creates with your team, with your partner, your kids and everything around. So, so that's kind of where I learned. And then uh, did my MBA in Babson. Uh, before that, I took uh, like a year and a half off and I traveled the world, went to Australia for six months and just uh, run the world ticket um, and then landed in Babson, did my MBA. 
And really, I wanted to have a space to design my next company. And there were two big trends in the world uh, at that moment in the US. Hispanic market in the census of 2000 was the first time that the US corporate world realized how powerful the Hispanic market could be. Uh, it was the first time that they really showed the size of the market in 2000. And the second one was home ownership. Uh, at that moment, Bill Clinton wanted to uh, raise home ownership like 3% or whatever. And that's why they were giving so many loans and mortgages on the subprime thing. So we opened a mortgage bank uh, to finance Hispanics, mostly undocumented. Uh, through a friend, we got a line of credit with Goldman Sachs, $500 million to give loans to undocumented Hispanics. And we started doing loans like crazy, 60, 80 loans a month. And one day when the subprime was beginning to crack down, I got a call from Goldman and said, no more. And I was like, what do you mean no more? And they said, no more. We tried to flip the portfolio. It's unflippable. So no more. Indeed, the guy that you put on the house yesterday, go and get him out. I had to go and get one guy out of his house. After we close, after title, I have to go and get him out because we couldn't fund him. Yep. So, uh, and after that, uh, I became a, a coach, a CEO coach. I began coaching entrepreneurs in Latin America. And some months after that, that's when Vern and I connected again, talk about the Growth Institute. And that's when we build the Growth Institute. That, that, that's a company I have today. Amazing. And in the process, I've done probably 20 angel investments or so. Um, uh, and we'll talk about that later. Oh, that's amazing. I, I honestly am so enthralled. I could have just sat here and you could have just kept talking for another half hour. Like you uh, had me totally entranced in this whole movement. This is Yeah, but, but you have to understand that I've been, I've been in business 23 years. So I've generated my payroll every two weeks for 23 years. Wow, that's it's, awesome. Yeah. So I, I have to ask that uh, when this whole component worked with the subprime area, yeah. Um, and they locked that down. What was the dollar amount of the entirety amount that you had out? And did this contribute them to this subprime problem? Because obviously you guys were doing loans, but did this cause, or was this just a blip in the whole massive system? It was just a blip. No, no. We So, so the loan, the line of credit was uh, acquired or negotiated by a Mexican friend of mine that lived in San Diego. And through him and all the let's say distributors partners, I was one of them. We got to $480 million of loans of undocumented, more or less. We were very close to the, to the 500 million. That's why they started going to the market to flip it. Mm. And there was, there was no market for it. And that's when they got scared. Um, so we, we were less than half a million, less than $500 million of loans. That for the size of the subprime, it was a drop in the bucket. It was nothing. Um, and by the way, I heard of that portfolio two or three years after, and it was performing still very, very high. Because if you give a loan to a Hispanic that has been undocumented, they know they will not be able to get a loan. So their family members move with them, they pitch mm -hmm. in to help pay for the mortgage, and it still performed very, very high. I've read the, a lot of that. It's, uh, it's a respect and it's a huge thing for uh, Latin America, really anybody, but specifically Latin American community that take a lot of pride in making sure that they pay back and they, they gain their place and build, right? So well, I'll give you an example. Um, so at that moment, we had a decision. I had investors and partners and we said, we have a decision. We have to shut this down because the Hispanic market and non-documented is going to be dead. Uh, or we flip the, how, the company to be a full typical mortgage company serving the typical American market. And the decision was, we were here precisely to do the undocumented and give an opportunity to Hispanics. Then we have no purpose of being in the market. So let's shut it down. So we said, okay, great. So I said, okay, if we want to shut it down, it will cost us today around a million dollars to shut everything down. And all the investors said, that's not my problem. I put my money, I lost my money, but we will not cover a dollar of that million. So I came back and I had two options. I had to... I could declare bankruptcy and go back to Mexico. I'm not even a U.S. citizen, so I could go back, and that was it. Um, and I decided not to do that. I called my father and an uncle and said, I need a million dollars to pay all debts, and can you wire the money, and I'll pay you whenever I can. And both my father and my uncle, between both, wired me a million dollars, and I paid 
every dime back. I've never been late in a credit card payment in the U.S. ever in history. And I paid it all back. Amazing. Uh, that makes you a very fact. good man, standing behind your word and pushing things forward. So that's awesome. Yeah. And no, that, that's, that's just Mexican culture. We, in the U.S., it was very easy to say, well, it's a bankruptcy. You go to court and you don't pay like 20% of that. I couldn't do it. I like it. No, that's, uh, that's a good way to, to run your business. And it speaks highly of, of the things that you're doing and building today. So in all of this process, and I know there's lots of stories and you've got lots of uh, uh, scars, we'll say, and, and uh, a lot of, um, uh, I guess we can call them propped up pats on the backs. You've done a lot of great things, but you've also had a lot of things that have kind of taken you back a little bit. Um, can you share maybe in, in this process, we've talked about some great wins, some overcoming some barriers. Uh, has there been something that kind of troubled you along the way that you just got stuck behind and said, you know what, this doesn't make sense. How can I fix this? What was that problem that you really got behind? So for me, it was uh, no one really prepares you to be a CEO. And really, you never build a company because you want to be a CEO. You build a company because you see a problem in the market or you want to offer a solution. And one day you wake up and you realize you're a CEO. You have employees, you have all these things. And one day it's like, oh my God, I'm a CEO. Like I have to decide a CEO. I have to, I'm in charge of payroll. Like those kinds of things is really, really big. The other day I was talking with a client that I was coaching and he had his, um, his Christmas vacation, sorry, his Christmas dinner. He used to do all these Christmas dinners. And one day they did this Christmas dinner and it was like 3000 people in the room. And he enters the room and see all these Huge people. Imagine a place to get 3,000 people. And calls his head of operation and said, I told you, without partners, it was just employees. And the guy said, it's just employees, sir. <laughs> and he, that's like, he realized 3,000 families depended on him. And he called me the next day and said, I had a really tough night yesterday. Because I went home and I said, if I go under, if I don't perform well, there's 3,000 families that depend on me. And you don't realize what is 3,000 people until you see them, everyone sitting down the room waiting for the dinner. Um, I'm getting goosebumps. I totally uh, can understand what that goes through. That's that is reality. Uh, by the way, I'll tell you a quick story about this guy. Today has like 12,000 uh, uh, clients, sorry, 12,000 employees, call centers all over Latin America. He got a big, big offer to sell his company, but like big offer, 12,000 employees. And the guy said, I have enough money. <laughs> like I'm going to sell it. They're going to treat my 12,000 employees bad, so I'm, I will keep it. And he kept it. He did not sell it. That's taking a decision. That, that's how you run a company. But okay. So, so that's kind, kind of things that no one really prepares you to be a CEO. And we have systems and procedures for everything we do, except how to be a better CEO. No one really teaches you. We don't have systems. We don't have procedures. Like No one tells you a book of what you have to do to be a CEO. And you have to take a course here and a course there and talk with an uncle and a mentor and an investor and try to figure this out. And that's, for me, a big issue that no one has really figured that out. And there's a lot of coaches that do that, but without a certain process or, or their own main thing, but without really putting together all these great practices out there of how to be a better CEO. And that's why you have CEOs paying big bucks to be coached by really good coaches that guide you on the process of how to be a CEO and not feeling lonely. It's a really lonely position to be up there uh, and have to take all the decisions. You can't imagine how many nights I've been trying to go to bed and cannot go to bed because I have no idea how I'm going to pay payroll the next morning. I know I have to pay payroll next morning and I have no idea how the money is going to come out to the account and you just cannot go to bed. And, and that's a big thing about entrepreneurship. Like you're responsible for your team. You're responsible to pay payroll. One of the things that I'm most proud of is I've never missed payroll in 23 years, ever. I've had to get loans. I had to sell things. I had to put from my money, like whatever. But I've never missed payroll in 23 years. So being a CEO. Um, and, and here I want to uh, tell a quick story. Uh, like four years ago, I was reading this article uh, about an entrepreneur that went public. And I think the stock went like $16 or $17 public. And that day, the stock closed like at 80. And everyone went crazy. All the employees had stock options and everyone went crazy and went to get drinks and get drunk that night. 
And the CEO of the company went back to work the night of the IPO. And their employees went to look for him. And the guy, they text him, hey, come here to the bar. And the guy said, no, I can't, I'm working. So this group of employees go to the office and said, what do you mean you're working? Like, you're four times richer. Like, you have all the money in the world that you want. Why are you working? And the guy said, you guys don't get it. When we went to the IPO, we value the company and what we believe is a fair price around $16 or $17. Now the company is worth $80, the stock. My business plan and the structure that we have is to support a company of $17, not a company of $80. Now it's our responsibility to build a company of $80. So I need to redo the business plan to figure out how to get the company to evaluation. So I'm going to stay to work. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this guy understands what is to be a CEO. And today I see these kids getting billion dollar valuations. They don't get it. What's, what's their responsibility? And, and this is really important for people that are raising money. And I've, I've heard this from many uh, investors today. Um, they said, we will accept almost any valuation that the entrepreneur asks, almost any valuation. But we put the terms. And when we put the terms, we always have preferred returns and drag along and tag along and all these rights that if you do not get to your numbers, we start clogging back our stock and gaining more stock from you. So if you put a really big valuation and you give us 20% and you don't perform, we're probably going to end up having 80% of the company because of all the clawbacks. And if you don't do it right, if you don't execute a business plan to the valuation, you tell them, you're done, you're under. And, and they really don't see that. Um, and that, that's a story I want to tell. And then they will go to, let, they will go to a CEO. And that's the story I told you on the, on the interview. So I've had really good angel investors that we've got 10 times our money or whatever. And I have some really bad ones. But I'll tell you one that I think is very important. So uh, one day I'm in my office and I get a call from this guy, a friend of mine from college. He was the head of the programmer, developer association or whatever of Cisco in Mexico. Really good programmer, like top, top, top quality programmer. And the guy said, hey, I built this company with my brother. We got these investors. We got screwed, blah, blah. We're thinking of walking away uh, because the deal is not the right thing. And these guys have been very unfair. We think we're going to walk away. Can you help us rebuild the company? And we want to build this other idea. Da, da. Would you fund us? And I said, fine. So I put like 100,000. And we, they walked away and we funded another company uh, for him and his brother. And we started like, building the business. And my job was to bring the first investors into the company. So the round A. And I got Intel Capital and uh, Darby. Uh, Darby is a company from Nicholas Brady, used to be a Federal Reserve uh, chair like in the 80s. And the guy that invented the Brady bonds, uh, the Brady bonds were very important in Latin America. When Latin America went into a financial crisis in the 80s, uh, we were saved because of the Brady bonds invented by Nicholas Brady in the US. So everyone in Latin America knows the Brady bonds because that's what kept us alive. And so I brought this two funds. They put like $5 million and we're off to the races. We start growing the company and doing all these things. And they said, hey, we have these opportunities in the US. Why don't we bring the company to the US? So my two friends moved to the US. They run, did run B and then run C. And then we start selling to the Pentagon. And because they're beginning to use our technology for defense. And if you have a Mexican CEO, you could not sell to the Pentagon. So one day, the Pentagon, in a very nice way, said, hey, we would like to buy from you, but we can't because you have a Mexican CEO. If you change your CEO and put an American guy, we'll buy from you. They could not tell you that openly. They told us kind of in a uh, walking to the car. So immediately, we changed the CEO. We told the co-founder, hey, sorry. This is for the company. And the guy said, of course. So we put a, an American CEO uh, and then we start selling to the Pentagon, start doing really, really good with the technology, uh, selling to US government. Uh, we had to do two teams, one team full of Americans. There were no other nationalities, just to government and then another group selling to business. And that we could have people from all over the world. And then we got round C and D and F and all these rounds. And then our revenue kind of plateau. And we plateau like three or four years. And the guys of the last round, their F round, because of all their controls and rights, 
One day they said, hey, you know what? We need to get out. Our fund is seven years. We need to close our fund. So we're going to sell the company. And they went through a process of selling it. And they got a valuation in 65 or 85 million. It was a pretty big valuation. And I said, okay, I'm ready for my check, right? I was angel investor. I had like 10% of the company. So I was ready for my check. And they sent me the accounting. The F round got their money and their preferred. The D round, their money under preferred. The C round, their money under preferred. The B round, they got their money without preferred. The A got zero. Angels, zero. Founders, zero. Now, like, Even the founders had zero. Zero. Wow. Because all the preferred return goes to the last investors. So imagine this. And this is, uh, if you're from outside of the US, imagine being a Mexican entrepreneur. You move your company to the U.S. You get all these investors from the U.S. You sell to the U.S. government. Uh, they use your technology for defense. They sell your company for millions of dollars. And you come back with your bags and zero cash. Yeah, that blows my mind. Wow. I got really mad. I sent emails and I complained. And the guy said, the numbers are the numbers. The preferred return every round, if you don't catch up on the rounds, you lose your preferred return. That's it. That was it. It's really no need to stay on top of it. So what in this context, what becomes the solution and what do you recommend uh, for angel investors or even earlier Series A, B investors on how to protect themselves through this process? So um, this, the first thing that happened is I did not understand the terms of the next round that I would have thought that, that I did not understand. I just accept the typical terms of a VC and then the private equity and the rest. And then I didn't realize this until the end, but if you continue to invest your percentage, then you have the rights of the next investors and you keep the rights of your round plus the new round. And I did not do that. I just made a big investment at the beginning and they did not make a reserve for follow-on rounds. If you talk to any of the real VCs and private equities, they said, hey, I have a $100 million fund. I'm going to invest 50 in first rounds and I'm going to keep 50 for continuous rounds precisely because of that, because that helps them or allows them to continue keeping their preferred returns and being on the table to decide if they sell and when to sell at what price. And as an angel investor, I never thought about that. That's nothing that I um, even think about. And I, sh I should have got out in the previous rounds, but because I didn't need the money, I was doing okay in my work. I said, well, let's, let's let it go. And I went with all the rounds without doing my continued investment. And I lost my preferred rounds. So I was, out. Well, I guess we, in that case, I'm sure you learned a lot and that's uh, protected yourself on all the previous or the next oh, rounds yes. of investments that you would make. Oh, yes. I invest very, very, very differently than I used to invest before. Yeah, it usually takes a, a big force to uh, help you learn a little bit to make sure that going forward, you don't uh, get stung twice, right? That's correct. And hey, I've, I've, I, I learned more of how to be a CEO from the company that went under the mortgage bank than from the company we sold in Mexico before, right? It really, the entrepreneurs and, and people really learn more from mistakes. We're, we're, they say that we're two or three times more uh, um, uh, focused or, or uh, engaged to move away from pain than to move, move towards a goal. So when you have pain, that's when you really learn and start doing things. So, yeah. Well, that's a good learning. And just to kind of go back to this, the CEO part and the things that you were talking about, um, I, I, I liked one of the analogies that you gave, and, and maybe you can talk to a little bit about this, because in a way, this is kind of talking to what you just mentioned, which was um, the, in the crisis state. You mentioned that when you go through a, a crisis state, it's like a forest fire, and it was a mentor that shared this with you. So maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, that analogy, because I think it really shaped up nicely on how a CEO really needs to be acting and, and moving forward. So, so you heard that in another podcast uh, uh, that I shared, right? 
So, so for me, um, we have a crisis every often. Um, and by the way, as, as, as human beings, we cannot stay in the middle and be balanced. We go to extremes all the time. We're like a pendulum and we're always moving to extremes. So we get to an extreme of craziness and valuations and things like, I think we're very close to where we are today. And then we're going to go all the way to the other side. Um, and a fire, sorry, a, a crisis is like a fire burning a forest. And the forest, you have really big trees, strong trees. And then there's a lot of weeds that take a lot of the water and the nutrients for the big trees. And when the fire comes, it takes all the weeds out and some of the trees that were weak or a little bit dry or something, and the fire takes them. But the fire usually leaves some strong trees. And those come back with more water and way more nutrients because all the ashes of the rest become nutrients uh, to, this land, to the land. And the trees that stay keep all the, the nutrients. So that happens a lot uh, in business. Um, I, I believe today, we've heard of it, there's a lot of zombie companies because of all the uh, money that is out there uh, giving all these crazy loans and the rest. Same thing happened in the mortgage business. I remember having people that when they walked to my office to get a loan, I said, I will never give you a loan. Like, you just don't qualify. And I put their information on the system, click a button, said, approved. And I was like, okay, I'm, I will approve it. If, if, if there's a buyer that's going to buy it, I'll get the commission, right? But I will never give them the loan. And, and I had the discussion with the banks and said, hey, why are you giving a loan to this person? I will never give them a loan. And they say, well, Daniel, you're going to get a commission. I'm going to get a commission. I'm going to sell it to the market in three days. So they're not even going to have their first payment in the next three days. So for me, I don't have an issue and I'll make a lot of money in the process. Became so, a, it became a cash cow versus a, an ethical process. And then people just run rampant with, uh, with the loss of the, the crisis that's occurring. The way banks used to work before is they kept all their loans in their own portfolio and they care about who paid the loan and really made a relationship with the banker and the rest because they wanted to know their clients and be able to. Today, they don't care because they're going to sell it on the market. That's exactly what happened in 2008 and we're making the same mistake too. And by the way, that's exactly what's happening with all the loans out there. The guys giving the loans is not their money. They just make a commission to do the loan and they're, they're putting all these loans in portfolios. They don't care if the portfolio underperforms. So it's, it's just the way it is. So the Christ are like, like a fire that like burns a, a forest and some things stay. And the ones that stay really come out with some bruises and stuff, but they come out much, much, much stronger. I really believe Christ are very important to clean out all the weeds in the market and really bring the market back to balance and to the right people that are really adding value in the market. And do you see that now happening because of COVID? Do you see that as being a crisis that is going to clean up? Or do you think that we've kind of just plowed by that and we're avoiding all of this crisis because it's kind of seemed like nobody really has even paid attention to the impact of COVID and they're just dumping money in and pushing the markets forward? For me, it feels very, 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 very similar to 2000. And I'll give you a quick analogy back in 2000. Every crisis starts with a um, volatility in, the, in their weakest asset. Um, back then was internet stocks and more like this, right? And we had a huge crisis and all this problem. And some of the internet companies came out strong, like Amazon, like Google. And they bring amazing value to the world. They survived. And today they're hugely valuable and important. I think the same is happening with cryptocurrencies. I, 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 I am one of those that believe Bitcoin is going to be zero or a million. And I think it's going to be a million. Um, but I've had cryptocurrencies for the last couple of years. I don't have any more. I sold them a couple of weeks ago because I'm waiting. I think it's, I, I see the volatility in cryptocurrencies and the Dutch coins and all that. It feels exactly and smells exactly the same as the internet stocks in 2000. It just, I, I'm seeing the movie again. So I'm, I'm, I think we could, we're up for something. And by the way, What's going to happen or when? I have no idea. I really have no idea. But it smells very similar, the Dogecoin, to Pets.com. 
and all the crazy things we had in 2000. And I don't believe the market will allow that a country like the US prints $7 trillion or Canada printed almost $2 trillion, um, and is not going to come to bite you back. Like you can, the, the market is the amount of service enough of products we produce and the amount of money in the, in the world, right? If you have more money than assets, you get inflation and you get this disaster. That's what we're having. We produce less with COVID and we give them more cash. They're going to come to buy us back. How? I have no idea. When? I have no idea. But I know that the market always looks for balance. And we are completely out of balance. I second that. I second that. And, and there is a lot of change that's going to happen. And, and to kind of circle us back a little bit to some of the things around the book and around how you're educating and coaching CEOs, um, can you give us maybe four or five points on things that when you're looking at a company or you're looking at helping a coach, what are the things that you want to educate them on? Because coaching can, and um, mentoring can be such a broad spectrum. And I know that you've been talking about inside of um, uh, your book that you're going to be releasing. And I believe that's going to be in October, November time. October, November, yes. Very exciting. So is there like maybe four or five areas that you would say, look, you're a CEO. This is the state you're coming in. This is where I'm going to see you. Here's five things that I'm going to make sure that by the time you're done working with me, these are the five things we're going to knock off. And they could be around execution, team, whatever those things are. Can you give us a good idea of what those would look like? So first, uh, companies like human beings grow in stages, right? I, I believe there's four stages in every scale-up, start-up, grow-up, scale-up, stage three, and then you start dominating your industry. Um, and I really believe uh, they all have similar problems. Like, hey, we, we call the kids in, in when they're two years, the terrible tools, because the kid realizes they could tell you no. Uh, if you have kids, uh, the kid thinks they're part of you until they're two. When they're two, they realize they're a different human being. And they be, now they understand they could tell you no. They could have their own way. Before, they could not have their own way. It's just they're, they're you. And we call it terrible tools because it's the first time that your kid is kind of rebel against you. And then when your kids are teenagers, how many people said, yeah, my kid's a teenager. We, we know between the hormones and they're figuring out what kind of adult they want to be. They're different. It's just the process that they come through. Same happens with companies. Uh, and I, it's very funny that I have conversations with entrepreneurs and they say, you don't understand. My case is different. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Every company goes through more or less the same issues. Like you, when you were a kid and a baby and an adult said the same thing, right? So you have to understand the stage and understand that companies in your stage are having similar issues. And by the way, I've had talks with entrepreneurs and they tell me how many employees they have and a couple of other things. And I'm like, great, so you're having cash flow issues and your biggest problem is marketing and then the leadership. And they're like, how do you know? Like, I didn't give you my business plan. And I was like, I just know. I know you're going to go through these issues. So really understand that depending on your stage is a different issue. And then the second thing that entrepreneurs make a big mistake is they believe a pill uh, could be taken at any time on the same pill. Uh, they come and say, hey, Daniel, what's the most important book I need to read? Or what's the most important methodology I need to implement in my business today? And I was like, that, that's like going to the doctor and ask him, hey, give me the most strong, the strongest medicine today, right? No, it's like the doctor's going to ask all these questions to understand what are you sick of and then give you the right medicine and the right amount or dose based on your age, your weight, uh, and all that. So it's really, really important that you understand where are you on stage, your leadership and all that, and then understand what's the right medicine for your company. And then going back to no one really prepares you to be a CEO. Uh, I really believe the best companies in the world, they are very, very good building systems and procedures and then running those systems and procedures. And hey, that's McDonald's. They build the easiest, simplest uh, system to build a burger that tests, tastes exactly the same. And the burger could be built by a 10-year-old here in Thailand, in China, in Malaysia, in New York, exactly the same, and the burger will taste exactly the same. That's what McDonald's is, McDonald's. Same thing happens with companies. We build all these systems and procedures, and then we hire and train our team to follow 
pieces and procedures to really run our companies. And when I go to a company, I ask them, hey, show me your systems. And they show me their accounting system, production system, customer support system, and the rest. And then I say, okay, show me your CEO system. How do you run the company as a CEO? How do you take decisions? How do you delegate? How do you do all these things? And they just tell, they go blank. So I strongly encourage CEOs to really build their system. And I am proposing in the book a system that I, that's been based on my experience and the thousands of entrepreneurs I've helped. But what I tell them is, hey, this is, I believe, 80%. You have to adjust your system to what works for you. But I try to give a model of four stages, uh, four stages of growth, and then the 12 things you have to do. Uh, and here I'll, I'll do a little bit of a breakdown on the, on the three things. I believe you have to do three things in every stage. People say, I want to build a great company. And I was like, great, you won't be able to build a great company. You have to focus on building a great team. And if you build a great team, that great team is going to build a great company. I believe teams have to be intelligent and healthy. You have to bring great, imagine you're playing uh, football. You want a great defense and a great goalie and a great front or whatever. And you have to help them play as a team. And that's the health of a team, right? I could have a great goalie, but he doesn't play well with the rest of the team. It's going to be a disaster. So I have to bring a very intelligent team and keep them intelligent and then aligning them and helping them work as a team and be a healthy team. So before you build or focus on building a great company, you have to build a great team. And for you to build a great team, you have to be a better leader, a great leader. And this, I've discussed it with many employees of my clients. And they said, you know what? I could not work for anyone else. I, I admire my CEO so much. And it's, it's just a role model, not just in business, in life. Like I could not be working for someone that is stealing or doing all these things. I just can't do that. So if you want to build a great team, you have to first be a better leader or be a, a great leader. And this is, I'll tell you a, a, a really bad story. The other day I was working with a company talking about core values. And we're trying to discuss core values and all the parts of the core values and all that. And we're talking about a core value of integrity. And the team was not accepting the core value of integrity. And I'm like, guys, integrity is like, it's like the base of the pyramid. Like, how can we not even talk about integrity? No, they didn't want to talk about integrity. And I'm like, guys, it doesn't make sense. Like, how come does happen? And we were like two or three hours having a discussion around this, and there was nothing. And then... Of course, everyone begins getting more nervous and the stress in the table begins getting nervous. And one of the team members said, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. And I asked him directly, why not? Tell me you exactly why you cannot talk about integrity and put a core value of integrity in the company. And the guy said, because my boss is sleeping with her in the table. Both of them were sitting down. And I know my boss's wife and kids and everything. If my boss is not, an integral person and it's sleeping with the secretary, I could not talk about integrity and put as a core value of the company. So until that, that doesn't stop, I, will, I cannot put integrity in the table. Damn. That was bad, yeah. That's pretty intense. Now, it, it got, I've had a couple of those, but it's true. Yeah, they're if you're not about there. integrity if you're sleeping with someone in the office and you have a family and kids, right? Yep. Like you want to talk about integrity, you have to always go through it right and do it right. Yep. Um, so so it, what, what I'm trying to tell CEOs is build a CEO system. There's a lot of great tools out there that works for you and adapts to your culture. And I'm proposing a model in the four stages and the three things, focus on you, focus on your team, focus on your company, and I give you the 48 things. And by the way, if someone wants to follow this, can you put a link on the description uh, there's going to be some slides. They could download some slides. I have a lot of the book uh, in Zalz. I'll be happy to give them away uh, to your audience if they really want to get deeper and understanding how to really build a CO system for them that could help them scale the company. No, that would be uh, brilliant. And I, and I think everybody would love to get access to that. Um, so, in, so you take this integrity that you're talking about with this CEO. And, and I think a lot of people uh, don't look at them as being the mantelpiece for this business, the people look up to that CEO. And if she or he, any actions they take, the time they put into the business, 
how they get to work, where they live, how they treat people, that that is so big and important to that company's success. How much they pay themselves compared to the rest of the team, all those kinds of things are extremely important to the company. For sure. And I think um, learning what you're putting together and how you're putting this emphasis on how the CEO has to structure themselves, I think it puts a lot of people to start to think about it at an early stage when they start this early stage company grind is that, you know, I might only have a team of five and that team's going to grow and it's going to change over time, but it all falls back to the principles uh, and how, like you said, the integrity of how that CEO starts. If they start going down the wrong path, they'll never get off that wrong path will just create a destructive company. But if they learn from the beginning and work their way up, that principle can guide their business all the way through. And you cannot tell people, hey, you have to be in the office 8 a.m. early and don't come late. And you're coming at 10.30 in the morning. Uh, that doesn't work. You have to be congruent in everything you do in business. And as, as congruent you're with your team, your team is going to be congruent with your clients and the rules of the company. So that congruency is really important to make things work. And I think if you take the analogy you gave of um, children uh, as a kid, they fight against the grain until they figure out what the line is that they won't cross. And your team will do the same if they see you not aligning up. So I think using your analogy is a perfect situation for being a great parent or being a great CEO is that your team and your staff are going to push you to get to that line. But once you hit that line, that's where your business is going to start to grow and see that success because they see how you act. They see how you're driving it. And you become that staple in the business. And, and before we, we finish, I would like to talk with just one more subject that I think is really important. You and I talk about this uh, on, on before the interview, but I see one of the biggest mistakes I see entrepreneurs doing is scaling the company because they believe they have to scale it. And they don't. Um, and I really believe this is a very, 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 very important point. In the US, there's 28 million companies. 96% of the companies in the US do less than a million dollars in revenue. Just 4% go above a million, 0.4 go above 10 million, and just 17,000 companies do go over 50 million in revenue in the US. So, so that's, that's the size of the market and that's the complexity of the market. And here's the biggest mistake I see entrepreneurs doing. They believe they have to scale the company. And I probably convince more entrepreneurs to stay in stage two than going to stage three. For me, stage three is a scale-up. And stage two, uh, it's what I call a grow-up, or it could be called a lifestyle business. I really believe the best combination of you having a great lifestyle and cash flow to you, it's 12 to 12 employees. That's a maximum. If you pass that, then you're a scale-up. You have to put a first level of managers and Complexity just goes through the roof. Uh, and entrepreneurs, they said, hey, if I'm making $10 when I'm on stage two, I'm going to make $100 when you're on stage three. Ah, oh, no way. The amount of money you make goes down significantly. You have to go through a value of death between you go stage two and stage three. And it takes you like from, let's say, 15 employees to 60 or 70, that value of death. And it's horrible. You work more, you have less cash coming to you, but you're really building an asset and that has an intrinsic value that people are going to buy from you. So if you go past the 15 employees, it's because you're going to build something that is going to run without you. And entrepreneurs don't get that. They still want to be the center. They still want to take decisions and run it in stage three like it was stage two, or run, it, run the scale up like they were running a family business. And it just doesn't work. The amount of entrepreneurs that I've seen that they go to stage three and then they have to implode their company and come back to stage two is crazy. So um, I have several stories that I've been giving this presentation. Indeed, my, I gave a TED talk, I think nine years ago or 10 years ago about stages. It's in Spanish, so very few people have been able to see it in English, but uh, it's in Spanish. And I talk about this 10 years ago, about the stages and the rest. Of course, we've improved the model since significantly, but I started talking about this. The amount of entrepreneurs that have come to me after and said, I had to implode my company. I was on stage three and I hated it. I had no idea what I was doing and I had to come back to stage two and just stay in stage two. I'm never going to go back to stage three. So I strongly recommend entrepreneurs when they're in stage two to really decide what kind of company they want. 
hey, I want to build uh, an asset that has intrinsic value and whatever, get investors, blah, blah, and then blow it up. But you know the process until you get to 100, 150 employees is going to be more drama, less cash, more work, less margins until you pass that value of death. And now you have a company that is worth it. And that's why private equity is very, very clear. They come in the company at $10 million of revenue because that's when you finish the second value of death uh, and you're past the, the tough part of stage three. And now it's worth it to scale it. I love that. You're right. And there's that, that value of death can kill so many companies. And I think your statistics 100% prove that. And I think that's from lack of planning or understanding of your business, but also understanding where you're trying to go and what it's going to take to get your company and your team to get through that valley and get to that next stage. Um, but that's, that's well shared. Um, one last question before we move on to the rapid fire questions is while you're working with these companies and these CEOs, and you've gone through these different stages and helping them better understand it, are, are you also focused with educating that CEO on how to help their teams and pick the right people? Because I think that that team is so important, like you've stated. So how do they learn what is the right need and how to delegate, but how do you delegate to the right people? So how do you get those right key players? Do you have to spend a lot of money? Is that what it's all about? Or is there culture that comes into this and people just want to join because you've built this amazing culture? What is it that really drives that entrepreneur to find the right people? So it's really about having a... Um, and by the way, today, that's a big thing with millennials and younger generations. They have to be aligned with the purpose of the company and the core values of the company, the, the culture. Um, if they are aligned mentally, they will stay for long. If they're not, they're there for the money. They'll be there if the money is good and they will leave when the money is not good or when the drama in the company is too high. The, the employees that stay is because they're there because uh, something that is above the money and is usually the purpose of the company. Um, and here's why we build the growth institute precisely for what you're saying. Um, I've been an entrepreneur 23 years and I've read a lot of books. I've probably read a thousand, 2000 business books. Um, and I've attended course of whatever you want. And my biggest problem is I go to a course. It takes me two days to go through a program and then I have to teach it to my team with kind of half the knowledge and try to help uh, teach them how to execute without having the how to execute. And that's precisely why we build the growth is to the way we build it. We usually, whenever we sell a program, we sell it for three or four people. We don't sell it for one. And people said, no, but I just want one seat. And I'm like, we'll sell you a seat, but you won't get the value. I want you to buy three or four seats. You come with your team and you implement together. Um, and, and it's, so I'll tell you the, the story on scaling up for me. And by the way, scaling up, I am a, a scaling up coach. So I'm biased, but I think it's a, a must. Um, tool to be able to implement in your business, scale your business. Um, I took scaling up or what it was called Rockefeller Habits in MIT with Vern Harnish in 2000. And I came back to Mexico and told my team like, oh my God, this is the best thing since sliced bread. It's like, we have to do this. And I tried to explain they didn't get it. So I got really mad and I said, okay, I'm going to pay it. Let's go take a course San Antonio with Vern so you could see how good this is. And they said, no, we don't have the money. We're a startup. And it was going to be like $5,000. And we didn't have the money. So I opened my checkbook, wrote a check of $5,000 and put it on the table. Said, I'm paying for it. If we go to the workshop and you guys don't believe it was good for us, it's my check. If you believe it was the best thing after sliced bread, then the company will pay it. And my team said, okay, we're in. Because there was no risk, right? Going a weekend to San Antonio, go shopping or whatever, good. So we did that. We came to the workshop, lunchtime the first day. They looked at me and said, like, this is amazing. Why didn't you told us? And I was like, why do you think I wrote a check to tell you? Like, I, I was trying to explain it to you. You didn't get it. It's not the same if your boss tells you something. If you hear it from someone else, it's going to be a completely different message. And the implementation is going to be through the roof in results if you, they hear it directly from the source. So the way we build Growth Institute is we sell a seat for three or four people on a class and you come mostly the CEO with head of operations, CFO, whatever. They come through a class together. And then the team said, 
got it, we understand, this is the agreement, we're going to implement without you. And they implement without the CEO. So the CEOs love to come through our programs because they said, it's the only program I did not have to implement on my own after. And had all the weight of the implementation. My team is so excited that they implement without me. And they know exactly what I'm talking about. We have the same wording, the same words, knowledge to what we have to do. We have an agreement of what we have to implement and they implement without me. I love that. That's brilliant. You're enabling the entire team to understand the principles so that they can implement it together versus the CEO trying to push something that he vaguely knows, um, but is excited about it. And they're looking at him thinking he's nuts or she's nuts. So I think that that makes a big difference. So I love that. And being an enabler is the key word for today. Um, All right. We're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. I I think that that's, we've been learning a ton. So that's awesome. Um, All right. So there's some business questions and then we're going to get into some personal ones. So the business questions, these are going to be related specifically to investing. All right. Yep. Okay. Founder or co-founder? Co-founder. Unicorn or four-year, 10 times exit? Four, four, uh, four years, 10 times exit. Tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Tech. AI or blockchain? Oh, that's a hard question. I think both are going to blow it off. I, I, I think both. All right. First-time founder or a second and third-time founder? Second and third time. First time founders, they don't know what they don't know. Okay. First money in or Series A? Series A. Angel or VC? I like Angel, but in a Series A. Okay. Uh, board seat or observer? Board seat. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Lead or follow? I like to lead. I want to make a, a personal relationship with this with the CEO. Equity or interest payments? I'm more an equity guy, but okay. the money that I invest is not money that I need in the long term. So okay. I'm an equity guy. Favorite part of investing? Helping another entrepreneur be successful. It's not that it's not about the money. It's all about the coaching and everything that happens behind the money to have the success. Love it. Number of companies you invest in per year? Today, I'm not doing investments, uh, but I've done, let's say, 20 in the last 20 years. So one per year, average. Okay. Any preferred terms? Um, usually, I prefer return. Uh, if, they, if the entrepreneur doesn't, come, come, doesn't get to their business plan. If they tell you they're going to grow 30% and they just grow five, no, it's going to cost. Okay. Prefer return. And verticals of focus? So I love tech and, and uh, sorry, tech in education and health. Education and health, uh, both are deeply impact, impacted by tech and both have really software margins in non-software. Okay. All right. Personal questions. Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Superman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Ice cream. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah. I love Oprah too. Uh, Arsenal or Manchester United? I'm not a soccer fan even. I'm from Mexico, but Manchester. I'm trying to find Arsenal fans. Uh, Bike or rollerblades? Bike, 100%. Trophy or money? Oh, that's a tough question because at the beginning it's money and then it's trophy. But until you don't get your numbers and you're not financially comfortable, money. Okay. Beer or wine? Beer. Alarm clock or mobile phone? Mobile phone. Hotel or hostel? Hotel. Uh, the other one was going to be who's going to win the uh, Euro Cup. So I, I guess you can pick between. I, that's uh, Italy, right? Italy's it's, in there, and it's between England and Denmark. I haven't. I'm not sure who who's won so far yet, but who's going to win? I, I think Italy has pretty good chances. 
they beat Spain and it was, it was really, really tough. All right. Political question for all this stuff that Trump's done. Is he going to go to jail for this tax issue? Yes or no? No. All right. I've been surprised how he's able to get out of trouble in the worst trouble ever. I've said like, this is going to get him. No. Now this one's going to get him. No, this one. No. So he's never going to go to jail. Yeah. It's pretty surprising. Yeah. Um, Any other person in the world would have gone to jail six years ago. Totally. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. Not Trump. He's never going to go to jail. Nope. Okay. Favorite sports team. Do you have a favorite sports team? Um, um, Maple Leafs. Whoa, say that again? Maple Leafs. No way. <laughs> I lived in Toronto. So. Oh, that's impressive. I, don't, I can't even be a Maple Leaf fan, but I'm glad that you're a Maple Leaf fan. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. So I, I, I'm not that much of a sports on TV person. I'm more a bike person. I did a bike this morning with my wife. Um, I, I'm more of an adventure outside. So if you said like favorite team, not the typical football, whatever, the Kiwis, uh, uh, the, the New Zealand team of the Eco Challenge. Yep. I think they're, they're the best sport team ever. I like or it. the All Blacks of New Zealand in rugby. Yes. Yeah, you can use all of them. That's his team, man. You could be anyone. They're great. Yeah, for sure. All Blacks. Then that's all my team. Blacks all Blacks are great. I, I admire that team significantly. They're brilliant. Perfect. Okay. Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Oh, wow. There's a lot of movies. Um, so one that I saw with my daughter recently that I, um, uh, that I got very identified, uh, the greatest showman uh, movie, this guy that, uh, that makes his show with these weird people. And he goes through all the roller coaster of entrepreneur. Um, it, was, it was an interesting movie that I never thought was going to be about entrepreneurship, and it's all about entrepreneurship. Um, uh, Jason Bourne, that's like, when I see Jason Bourne, like, I would love to have been born to be Jason Bourne. <laughs> that's a series. I just watched 007. That 007, series. 007 it's, it's a joke. Jason Bourne is a real thing. I, I watched that whole series like two months ago. Uh, again, Brilliant. Big Ten too. Yes. It Brilliant. is. Yep. I love it. All right, last question. What's your superpower? What's my superpower? That I'm stubborn as hell. Um, I, I, when I have something in my mind, I don't stop until I get it. So in entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm not the most intelligent or the most red or the most whatever, but I'm stubborn as hell. Whenever I put a goal, I don't let the goal go until I complete it and accomplish it. I love it. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I would believe not only myself, but everybody that listens today is going to learn a tremendous amount. As I always do in show, I've created lots of notes. I'm uh, old schooler on that, but uh, lots of great material there. Um, just before we end, we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to say to a startup or to an investor, we leave it to you. But again, thank you for joining us. And we wish all the success on your book launch. But uh, yeah, we'd love to, uh, love to get your thoughts and, and share on anything you can share back to the community. So, so the last thing, um, everyone does a company because they want some freedom. Understand what's the freedom that you're looking for. Because I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that they build a company and they become slaves of the company, exactly what they're trying to, to go away from. Um, and a lot of scale-ups lose that freedom. So just have clarity of why you build your company and build a company that will give you that freedom. I love it. I'm trying to write this down as fast as I can. But uh, that's brilliant. No, I love it. Again, Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. Fantastic job. Thank you. Okay. Wow. That was uh, awesome. Daniel Marcos really shared a lot of great insights, a ton of things uh, that we can talk about. A lot of great answers in, uh, in the rapid fire side of things as well. But I think some of the great things that we talked about is certainly um, having uh, you know, identifying yourself, understanding what you're trying to achieve. Um, he talked about, you know, how in crisis mode, things are going to get uh, burnt down. The great 
businesses will stay there, grow, take the nutrients from the, the ashes and grow their business back up. Um, look for businesses and founders that have integrity, have integrity. I, I think that is uh, key to anything. Building around culture, uh, looking for a fantastic CEO that wants to learn, coach and be mentored. You know, I, I think that comes up quite a bit in all the things that we talk about. And I think the last thing that he said was, you know, uh, build clarity on why you built your company. Make sure that you don't become a stress inside of that business and doing something that you don't like. Figure out what you're trying to achieve. Go after it with integrity. Get your team to love what they're doing and be behind you the whole time using that um, culture side of, of managing your business. And again, at the end of the day, it's all about clarity. Uh, where, why are you doing this? And make sure you're doing it for all the right reasons. That'll keep you f- the fuel going and the energy uh, alert in your in your business. So thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for the startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you very much and have a great day.